for the first time in decades, I have total freedom over my time, which is amazing. When did the idea of FIRE become a thing for you? Like financial independence, retire early. When did you realize you were on track for that? You are listening to the Financial Clarity for Doctors podcast by Finity Group, LLC, where we discuss the pertinent financial planning topics facing physicians and other medical professionals. Discussions in this show should not be construed as specific recommendations or investment advice. Always consult with your investment professional before making important investment decisions. Securities offered through Cambridge Investment Research, Inc., a registered broker-dealer, member FINRA, SIPC. And now, here are your hosts, Rochelle Vanderzanden and Corey Janoff. <laughs> okay, everyone, welcome to Financial Clarity for Doctors. Uh, Rochelle Vanderzanden here with Corey Janoff, as always. Hello. Hello. And then we are also joined today by Leif Dahlin, a.k.a. the Physician on Fire. You want to say hi, Leif? Hi, Leif. I mean, hi, Corey. <laughs> hi, Rochelle. Perfect. Good to be with you. <laughs> we are recording from quarantine today, but we wanted to, to talk to Leif today a little bit about his philosophy. He is the creator of the popular blog on personal finances for doctors, the Physician on Fire. He retired from medicine at age 43, and now he spends quite a bit of his time on the blog, but also spending time traveling with his wife and two kids, which is really exciting and a little bit grounded at the moment, but should be able to pick back up in a bit. Um, before we go like too far into a whole bunch of questions, do you want to tell us just a little bit about ourselves, about yourself so that our listeners who don't know you very well can learn a little bit more? Uh, sure. Yeah. And like you said, I'm an anesthesiologist. Haven't worked since last August. Uh, that was uh, 2019 was my last shift. I wasn't planning on working at all this year, although I did tell my old uh, employer and old uh, department chief that I'd be willing to go back if the need arises there. I still have a Minnesota license and uh, credentials at the hospital. So that still remains a possibility. But the idea was I figured out I kind of had enough money to retire and uh, decided that there were a lot of really cool things we could do as a family if I went down that path. So, uh, yeah, for the last seven months or so we were traveling. Uh, spent a couple months in Mexico, a couple months in Spain. Uh, very disheartening to see what's happening there right now and now what's happening in our own backyards uh, here in the States. But uh, yeah, in a nutshell, that's it. I've got two boys, nine and 11 years old and a wife. And uh, uh, for the first time in decades, I have total freedom over my time, which is amazing. I bet. And you mentioned you'd be willing to go back. Do you plan on maintaining your licenses and working in some capacity someday? Or is this kind of just more of a favor while things are crazy right now? Yeah, I look at it more uh, as the latter. Like I will, I'm willing, I still have the skills to, uh, you know, intubate people that need to be intubated and uh, maybe minimal critical care skills. It's been quite a while, but anesthesia has some overlap there. So, um, but I did work part time for the last two years before I retired. Uh, so that was kind of a trial run to see how it would be going weeks at a time without actually showing up to the hospital. And that went pretty well. So my uh, tentative plan was to keep my uh, credentials and license and do the CME, you know, for a year or two. And we're not even one year in yet. So that's where I'm at right now. Great. And then when did you become interested in personal finances? Well, when I first had personal money <laughs> to do something with, you know, um, 
finished residency in 2006 and you know my uh, income went from you know 38 or 40,000 a year to almost 10 times that you know overnight and so that's when I really uh, had to kind of figure out all right where is this money going to go what am I going to do with it I had spent a little time even in medical school uh, kind of preparing and I, I know my father recommended and I think even sent me the book uh, called The Only Investment Guide You Will Ever Need from Andrew Tobias. Um, and it wasn't necessarily the only one, but it was a great intro. Um, and so I had that as a, a little bit of a, a head start on my financial education uh, way back as, a, I believe, a third year medical student. Awesome. I feel like a lot of times people in medical school and residency, they, they don't know a whole lot. So it's good when people take the incentive to teach themselves a little bit. Yeah, or in their 10th or 20th year of uh, practicing, yeah. <laughs> they don't know a whole <laughs> lot. So trying to change that, you know, one yeah. blog post, podcast yeah. at a time. When did the idea of FIRE become a thing for you? Like financial independence, retire early. When did you realize you were on track for that? Yeah, that's a that's a cool acronym. And it's part of my name, Physician on FIRE. Yeah. I didn't um, know really about this concept. I mean, I thought maybe I would retire early-ish in my 50s, maybe do some travel work, welcome tenants work for a while. Uh, once the kids were out of the house, that kind of thing. Uh, that was in the back of my mind. But then about five, five plus years ago now, I discovered this blog called Mr. Money Mustache, a guy out in Colorado who had retired from his software engineering job at age 30 to start a family. And, uh, I read a lot about what he had to say and figured out what the formula was and realized that at age 39 myself, I pretty much had financial independence right right then. And then so that's when I had to start thinking about, well, what am I going to do with this FI? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, do so, I want to continue working? You can make more choices at that point. Right. So it was about a five-year plan that my wife and I came up with at the time. We had just uh, moved to a new, uh, a new community to us and started a job about a year prior to that. And I was, it was the best job I ever had. And so I was in no hurry to change anything. But the more we thought about what we could do without a job, <laughs> uh, the more we liked that idea. And uh, we made that a reality, like I said, last summer. Fantastic. When did you decide and why to start your blog well yeah i was reading that mr money mustache i thought that was really uh insightful and uh i really enjoyed the way he wrote uh that led me to maybe a, a few other fire blogs and uh, a doctor uh blog or two on personal finance and the white coat investor was uh the main one that i discovered and he's still uh, definitely the top dog in in this space but uh you know i didn't find a blog that I was looking for, which was more of like a high income financial independence, one less focused on, you know, frugality and uh, just figured, well, if it's not out there, maybe I can create it. So I just took a stab at it and started uh, writing on a blog that I started up in early 2016. 
Yeah, and I'm a big fan, and, and I'm sure some of the listeners have heard of you and read your stuff, but in terms of your writing style, sense of humor, I feel like we're on the same wavelength there. So uh, I enjoy I enjoy the posts, especially the ones where you, know, you, you joke around a little bit, your, your guest posts with the reference to Spinal Tap, which is always yeah. good. Um, yeah, I have a little fun with it. I appreciate that, Corey. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> and How then, do you think – yeah. Yeah, I was just going to ask, like, how do you think financial literacy right now among physicians compares to what it was like when you were just getting started? I think it's slowly getting better. There are definitely more resources out there for people to learn. Like you were saying, Corey, you can kind of identify with, you know, the way I write and then kind of try to be the ordinary average guy, Um, you know, a small town guy. Um, But there's someone for everyone. There are dozens of physician personal finance bloggers and podcasters now when i started you know just not even five years ago there were maybe a half dozen uh that were blogging and i don't think any podcasts uh, at the time from physicians on on the topic of uh, personal finance so there are a lot more resources and i think with burnout being such a big issue and the lack of autonomy is uh more and more physicians are employed and, and told what to do and how to practice. Uh, people are realizing that it's important to be a good steward of your money and give yourself options, like you mentioned earlier, Rochelle, uh, which is what financial independence does. So I think the combination of having more uh, people to learn from and good reasons to get control of your finances uh, has improved financial literacy. I think we still have a long way to go, though. Yeah, I'm sure, you know, some people are all about it. Other people, it's it's more of like pulling teeth, but definitely feel like the resources and information is out there for those who want it. Yeah, it's just about inertia, you know. Well, yeah, I need to look at that someday, but someday isn't going to come around unless you decide, okay, today I'm going to start, I'm going to do one thing and figure something out, figure out where my money is, figure out what it's invested in, Mm -hmm. you know, and go from there. You mentioned burnout Uh, um, I don't know how much that played a role in your decision to retire completely from medicine as opposed to work in a more limited capacity on your own terms. I guess the last couple of years you kind of did that, but h- how did you make that decision? Yeah, I think if I had any symptoms of burnout, they were fairly mild. I think a lot of uh, just the aspects of being an anesthesiologist, there's some overlap with uh, uh, the symptoms of burnout, like a lack of autonomy. You kind of are told what to do and where to be and when to be there. And people want you in two or three places at once. Um, it, it can be busy, but I, I feel like it was a good job for me and I don't regret having done it. Um, but at the same time, I've, I always enjoyed my days off more than my work days. And so uh, burnout wasn't a huge factor, but uh, yeah. I think we were talking about this a, a little bit before recording, but do you mind telling our listeners also, like, do you plan to maintain your medical license, continue practicing in some capacity, retiring completely? Uh, unless I go back during this uh, COVID-19 pandemic uh, to aid in that, um, you know, that effort, I don't see myself practicing beyond that. And if you would have asked me two months ago, three months ago, I would have said, yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm done. Uh, life is good mm-hmm. now. Yeah. So for me, leaving was not so much about like I need to get out of medicine, but just realizing that, oh, I saved well. Uh, The 
stock market was kind to us and I have different options now and that doesn't have to include uh, a paid job. And so, yeah, so we took advantage of that. You've written in some of your blog posts about the concept of geographic arbitrage and how that um, has helped you achieve financial independence and, and retire early. Can you talk about that a little bit and what that is? Yeah, so the concept of, of geographic arbitrage, and it's somewhat unique to healthcare, but uh, you, you're taking advantage of living in a lower cost of living area uh, that might actually have higher pay than some of the higher cost of living areas where uh, more people might want to live. Uh, now for me, I grew up in a small town in Minnesota. My wife is from a small town in Michigan. Uh, the upper Midwest is where we wanted to be and that's where I've done most of uh, my professional work. Uh, so I didn't, didn't uh, go out of my way to find a low cost of living area uh, or even to look for a, um, a really high paying job. But we just worked where, uh, you know, places we were familiar with where we had friends and family, but uh, it's worked out quite well. Um, you know, if you work in law or finance, you typically need to be in a higher cost of living city, you know, New York, San Francisco, um, Los Angeles, wherever. A lot of places uh, where the big money is is also where uh, it costs a lot to live. Um, and that's almost the opposite, at least on average in medicine. Higher pay tends to come in the more rural areas and small and medium sized cities. Absolutely. I feel like I have that conversation a lot with my clients. So, you know, this is the exact opposite of the way that it is for most people. Like if for it most is. people, if you go live somewhere where the cost of living is lower, you make less money. But yeah, yeah it's just not the case for doctors. Most of right. the time. Yeah. Right. And now there may be a reason that New York City or uh, San Francisco, not to pick on those two places, but, <laughs> you know, maybe that's where all your family is. That's where you went to school. Yeah. That's where you, you know, met your you know wife or husband. Yeah, you, you can make it work. And I know people in those areas that make a lot more than I ever did. But on average, if you look at like a heat map of salary uh, versus location, uh, the center of the U.S., the Midwest, uh, those places tend to offer higher pay. And some of the other benefits to attract people are, are great. You know, I'll often have conversations with folks graduating residency with a bunch of student loans and you got an option potentially, hey, go work in the middle of nowhere and you'll make double what you'd make in San Francisco or New York. Plus, it'll give you an extra 50 or 100 grand a year to go towards your student loans. Do that for a few years, get out of your hole and then mm -hmm. go back to wherever you ultimately want to be. Yeah, the, the first you know few years, five years of your career, you can really make a lot of progress, knock mm -hmm. out just about any student loan balance if you make a choice like that. Absolutely. So we, you talked a little bit about your wife and I know that she's like written guest or guest blogs a little bit on your blog. Um, and I know that she seems like kind of an integral part of what you're doing in your own life. Can you talk to us a little bit about like how she has helped you achieve your goals and your family's goals? Yeah, lots of ways. Um, <laughs> we have been a, a one income household, uh, for the most part, uh, which was my income, but uh, that wouldn't have been possible if she wasn't available 24 seven to our kids and to uh, get them to where they need to be and take care of them and everything else so that I could be available to the hospital 24 hours on call, which I, I was quite a lot. And uh, and then of course it's, it's how much, uh, you know, how much you save 
you know, there's two factors, how much you earn, how much you spend. And we both, like I said, grew up in small towns. We don't have expensive tastes. And so uh, being, you know, I think in harmony, being on the same page there when it comes to relative frugality, um, you know, without even having to discuss uh, a lot of things, you know, we, we've never argued over you know, spending because uh, I think we have similar values there. So, uh, yeah, she's been a big part of it, and uh, yeah, and I would have uh, you know, much less to look forward to in retirement if we weren't you know, doing this together. Mm-hmm. Makes yeah, sense. it's really helpful. Yeah, it's really helpful when everyone has the same goals because that's not always possible with with couples and families. But <laughs> but if you're lucky enough to have that, you can definitely achieve them faster. Indeed. Yeah. So tease the listeners a little bit with what your life has been <laughs> like since you officially retired from medicine. Yeah. So uh, we moved to Northern Michigan where my wife's family is. And then we took off on uh, our first uh, multi-month travel adventure. We spent uh, nine weeks in Mexico and went to, uh, well, we'd actually spent three weeks in a city called Guanajuato, uh, couple, three years ago, and we loved it there. So we went back to Guanajuato, took some Spanish classes, and uh, you know, just kind of sort of lived like the locals to some extent and explored the area and worked on our language skills. And then we went to Mexico City for a couple weeks and a city called Querétaro for a couple weeks. Perfect weather, uh, great people, uh, great food, and that was really, really a uh, a wonderful family adventure and our kids really like traveling like that too. You know, we tend to get an Airbnb, stay in a place for two to four weeks and uh, kind of get to know the area, you know, as far as our homeschooling or world schooling, the kids, you know, they do some projects related to where we are learning about the local history, culture, language, etc. So we did that for a couple months, came back home to Michigan and Minnesota to celebrate Christmas with our families and then did something similar, but uh, in Spain for the uh, months of January and February, coming home uh, just uh, in the very beginning of March, as some of the uh, coronavirus cases were starting to pop up. Uh, we had actually spent time in the three largest cities in Spain, which was Madrid, uh, Barcelona, and Valencia, and we loved it there too. How are the Spanish skills coming along? Uh, un poco, and <laughs> a little bit at a time. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I use the Duolingo app even after we've been back. I have got like a streak going back to last October without officially having missed a day, although they kind of let you miss a day and, and make up for it. But uh, it's going okay. Cool. And I know yeah. like you mentioned homeschooling a little bit and world schooling, which is an exciting idea. Like how do you manage that while also having fun? Yeah, you're, my wife would be a better person to answer that question. But yeah. Uh, she, um, yeah, no, she started even in the summers when our kids were in public school. She didn't like the brain drain that happens over that three month period. So she would have some enrichment activities for them, get some workbooks for them to be uh, still kind of in, in school mode, even if for 30 or 45 minutes a day. Uh, and so when we were on our own for education, we just kind of expanded upon that. We've done a lot with Khan Academy, which is a free online resource that's got tons of classes for uh, kids from kindergarten all the way um, through high school and beyond. And uh, you know some other things that she's found 
typing club and I mentioned uh, Duolingo for language uh, lessons. And, and so it's a, it's a mix of different online resources and some in paper as well. Uh, and we found that you can, you can probably get as much education in, in a couple, three hours as you would in a normal school day. And a lot of homeschoolers told us that beforehand. I didn't know if I should quite believe it, but yeah, it turns out uh, to be to be true. Yeah, not as many distractions and going from one place to another. And yeah, right. Yep. And my my wife uh, did a little bit of substitute teaching um, for a year or two when our kids were in school. She was already volunteering at the school, so she said, "Well." If they need someone to fill in for the whole day. I can do that too. And and she realized, yeah, there's uh, there's a lot of social interaction. There's a lot of different things they do. But as far as what they actually learn in a day, you can cover that pretty quickly at home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially sure. at that age. You know, they were, uh, you know, like I said, grade school age at this time. Absolutely. For some younger doctors who are listening to this who want to achieve FIRE, what are some of the most important things that they can do in your mind to potentially realize that dream? Yeah, we mentioned the geographic arbitrage. That can help. Um, but it's really about just living well below your means. you know. And uh, I challenge physicians to live on half their take-home pay. You know, If you can live on half of what you get after taxes, put the rest towards retiring your debt and uh, making investments, maxing out all your tax-advantaged uh, retirement accounts and and hopefully starting a, a taxable brokerage account of your own. Um, you live on half, you'll be financially independent in about 15 years, give or take, depending on what the market does. And, uh, uh, and most physicians living on half means a six-figure annual spend. And that's, you know, you can live decently well on that, especially in the lower cost of living areas like we talked about. I know that there's a lot of feelings about debt out there and like getting rid of it immediately and not taking on new debt. Do you have any feelings about debt or do you think there's a place for debt in a plan? Yeah, I'm not necessarily on the uh, Dave Ramsey train of like pay off all debt. It's all terrible. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it obviously makes sense to take on a mortgage for your first home. And most of us took on debts for uh, our student loans and those are totally appropriate. I don't like taking on debt to buy a car, a boat, an RV, you know, any kind of consumer good. I think uh, if you really want it, you should save up for it. And with a physician salary, you can. Um, So I've been debt free uh, since about the time I discovered financial independence. And that was somewhat, uh, not that I made any changes, it's just that we were mostly debt free already. We just had one house uh, that we had to sell from uh, a place where I had lived earlier. And that happened about the same time. So I like being debt free. I think the psychology of it is good. You obviously have a lot more take home pay when you're not paying uh, thousands of dollars in mortgage every year, but it takes time to get to that point. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Everyone's different in, in, in their, how they want to live their lifestyle. Um, but for people out there who, who are wanting to maybe cut some things out of the budget to accelerate their their path to financial independence, what are some things you might suggest looking at first? Well, when you actually look at what people spend money on, it's it's the big things that matter most. 
it's the home you choose to live in, whether you're renting or buying, it's, it still costs you a lot of money. And uh, they have the kind of car you drive, motorcycles, boats, etc. to uh, anything with a motor. Um, and believe it or not, uh, people can really spend a lot of money on food and that's really usually dining out. Now, right now, not much of an issue, right? <laughs> Uh, we're like we're spending like, more on groceries, though. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> true. And no, you know, shop at Aldi, you'll, you'll save money there too. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, but we've been ordering out from local restaurants even more than we used to eat out, just to try to keep them afloat. You know, yeah. during yeah. this difficult time for them. But yeah, the big three—it's where you live, it's what you drive, and how you eat. And then I would also add travel. That can be—I mean, we travel a lot, even you know. Throughout my career, my wife and I have traveled a lot. We started traveling as a family a few years before I retired. Um, but we don't take $10,000 vacations. You know, it might be a few thousand dollars or even less if we're you know, doing something more locally, camping or something. So, um, but you can you can drop a ton of money on travel too when you're allowed to do it, yeah, which is not now. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, a client once this was probably a couple of years. Well, I still have them, but a couple of years ago, we were reviewing expenses, and they estimated they spent about five thousand a year on travel. And then we actually looked, and it turned out to be closer to thirty-five thousand in the last year. It's, it's incredible how people have no concept of what they're actually spending. I don't know how you can be off by a factor of seven, but yeah, <laughs> I don't know. And we've done Disney World, Disney Cruise. We do that stuff sometimes, but you just, you know, you balance that out with, uh, like I said, maybe a camping or backpacking trip or, uh, you know, a road trip of some kind. Not every trip has to be, you know, four star, five star, you know, convenience. It's not for me, that's for sure. I do think it's amazing the people that just have no idea how much they're spending on random stuff too. Like we always have a, a miscellaneous category because you know things are gonna come up and you're going to spend money. And mm -hmm. people are like, oh, I think maybe like a couple hundred bucks a month on miscellaneous stuff. And I'm like, okay, then why don't you have any extra money? <laughs> like it's going somewhere. You make more than that. But Yeah, I never kept track. So when I figured out we were probably financially independent, I didn't know for sure. What I had was my credit card statements. I knew on average what those were. And uh, there wasn't much else we paid out of pocket other than like property taxes and checks for piano lessons or something. But uh, yeah, so I actually kept very close track mainly because I had a blog and I had to prove it to myself and to my readers that we truly were financially independent. And what I thought we spent was very close to what we actually spent, which at the time, and we had a, a paid off home, so no, no housing costs really, but about 70,000 a year. And now it's a bit more because we're paying our own health insurance. Uh, but yeah, we're, mm -hmm. we're probably in that 80, $90,000 uh, $90, a year range. And again, that's without a mortgage or rent payment. Should be able to live comfortably on that. With yeah. Mortgage. Yeah, exactly. Um, what are some words of wisdom you have for physicians uh, in, in this current market environment we're in from an investing standpoint? Yeah, that one where everything dropped like 30% in three weeks, two weeks. Um, that's, you know, basically what happened to me early in my career, uh, the Great Recession. So I finished residency in 2006 and things started tanking a couple of years later, bottoming them out at a 57% drop in the S&P 500 in March of uh, 2009. And I, what I did 
worked very well. I stayed the course. I continued investing. I bought on the way down. I bought at the bottom. I bought on the way back up. And when all was said and done and we recovered from that a couple, three years later, I had a lot more money than I would have had I done nothing. And so I would suggest you stay the course, keep making the periodic investments you've been making. And as long as we come back from this to an all-time high, which we have done through every other uh, market disruption in history, then you're going to be uh, better off for it. So yeah, so it's don't. tough. It's tough. I mean, it's hard to see the money you had drop 30% and then you know buy more mutual funds, buy more index funds, buy more stocks. But it is a, it is a, you know, you're, you're buying stuff on sale right now and it may drop further. Well, then you have even a better deal. Buy more then. Totally agree. Yeah. I tell yeah. people if, if we don't recover and come back, it, it probably means we have bigger things to worry about than our money. Exactly. Um, so, yeah. Uh, how have the recent market movements kind of impacted your finances? Are you guys still on track to be good? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I wrote a blog post uh, sometime last year uh, saying that I had a life goal of losing a million dollars. And the idea, and I wrote it all out, you know, was like, yeah, someday I'd like to have, you know, watch our money grow and then maybe a 10% drop will we'll take a million off. Well, it, I didn't have to wait that long. It, it happened already. <laughs> <laughs> My portfolio balance actually dropped by a full uh, seven-figure sum, which was amazing. I didn't expect it to happen so soon, but uh, I kind of had fun with it. I tweeted it out, you know, hashtag uh, mission accomplished. But, no, it doesn't change anything. I knew it would happen at some point. And, uh, you know, as long as you're not selling, you're not locking in any losses. The only selling I've done is is uh, quickly replaced. I've done some tax loss harvesting uh, to take advantage of the, the market drop and, and uh, lock in some quote-unquote paper losses while remaining invested. So uh, that's the main thing I've done differently is uh, watch my balances more closely to take advantage of any of those opportunities in my taxable brokerage account to uh, lower lower my tax rate. Yeah, and if anyone that's listening doesn't know what tax loss harvesting is, like ask someone or Google it. It's, it's important. <laughs> yeah, I've got a few posts on, on my site. Yeah, there you go. Uh, show you how to do it with Vanguard and Fidelity and, and some tips to not follow things up, which you can do. Mm -hmm, yes. Absolutely. <clears throat> um, I know one of your website's missions is charitable giving. I think you give half of your profits to charity. Any particular ones you're supporting right now? Well, right now I uh, actually upped that to 100% for uh, the month of April 2020, which is when we're recording. And, um, that that will all go to COVID-19 relief. So we started by giving to uh, the CDC has the fund, the World Health Organization with the UN has a fund, Meals on Wheels has a fund, and that's an important one for elderly who really need to be staying in more than ever, uh, getting food delivered to them. Um, I've also donated to one called uh, Get Us PPE. That's personal protective equipment that our uh, frontline workers need, masks, gloves, gowns protective face shields, that sort of thing. So uh, yeah, normally, you know, we, we give to a variety of uh, uh, different charities that help um, local communities, animal shelters, you know, food, food uh, shelves, you name it. Um, but right now we're, we're focused on uh, helping out with the pandemic and the relief Absolutely. efforts related to it. Yep. Thanks I for asking. Yeah. 
Food security seems like such a big issue right now. I know there's like another one called No Kid Hungry. And it's just like the idea is that there's so many kids that get their meals at school and now they're not in school, which yeah. is very scary for a lot of families. It is. It is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, mm. so to wrap things up, we got a few fun questions for you. Um, what are some of the, uh, what's your favorite place you've traveled to? I don't think I can name a favorite, but since it was recent, we loved Valencia, Spain. It's a city of about 1.6 million people or so. There's an old river that was rerouted and they took that dry riverbed, which already had all kinds of bridges going over it and turned it into a five mile long park uh, full of um, sports courts and, and beautiful fountains and running and biking paths. And we were out there all the time loved it uh, on the Turia. Uh, so I guess I'd go with Valencia as a favorite spot. We'd love to go back there sometime. And um, But I like exploring new places too. So it won't be anytime soon, even if we had the ability to leave today. What about some favorite food while you were traveling? A lot of good food in Mexico, you know, mm-hmm. enchiladas, street tacos. Uh, yeah, but we went out to eat a lot more than we normally do when we're in Mexico because groceries cost, well, produce is cheaper, but your average kind of packaged goods are about the same price in Mexico as they are in the States. But your uh, meals at restaurants, maybe one third the cost, uh, if, hmm. if not less. So we had a lot of a lot of nice meals out in Mexico. Another kind of geographic arbitrage. There you go. <laughs> Boom. And then I know you're, uh, from, from reading your blog and, and following you on social media, you're a fan of beer. What's your favorite beer and the best beer you've brewed yourself? Yeah, you asked me to pick favorites again. Um, I'm a Minnesota guy, and Surly Brewing was kind of the first big, like, unique craft beer in, in the state. Um, I mean, there's others. Some that's been around forever. But uh, they came out with some really hot forward IPAs. And I love their uh, Surly Abrasive, which is a double IPA that is a seasonal. They used to call it 16 grit. Uh, and those names come from the fact that Omar Ansari started his brewery in his father's old abrasives factory. So they made 16 grit sandpaper and uh, other abrasives. So Surly Abrasive is probably... Uh, you know, one that I, I would call a favorite and one I look forward to every year. And then you do some home brewing, right? I do. What's the, in your opinion, the best beer you've brewed yourself? I I I do a variety of styles, but I, I'd say at least half of what I brew is, is hoppy in some way. And uh, years ago, maybe three or four years ago, um, I found a Pliny the Elder clone recipe, and that's a beer from Russian River out in California. It's a very popular double IPA as well. Uh, And I made that clone, and I thought it tasted darn similar to the original. Uh, And so I would go with that one, the Pliny the Elder clone. And you can find that recipe easily. You can Google that and find it. There we go. Those are hard to make, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, you just got to be sanitary, which is something I'm used to from my day job. So Yeah. There you go. Pre children, I did some home brewing. Um, oh yeah. Now it's a little, a little hectic, and I don't know if if <laughs> the wife would approve with our household setup currently. But down the road, I'll, I'll get back into it. Yeah. Maybe when they're nine and eleven instead of there you go. three and one. <laughs> yeah, right. Three and the one year yeah. old. Hard to That's brew. Tough. <laughs> 
So leave, tell our audience where they can find you if they want to look up more about your blog and everything. All right. We well, can find the blog, Physician on Fire. You can get there a little quicker by typing in P-O-F-I-R-E.com, P-O-F-I-R. And I'm on uh, social media, of course, pretty active on Twitter. That's at Physician on Fire. And I have a Facebook group uh, and a Facebook page. And I'm on Instagram at Physician on Fire, too. So type in those words. You'll find me. Even mm -hmm. if you misspell it, it'll get you there. Everybody misspells physician. Sometimes me. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, keep up the good work. Love your material. So look forward to continue reading and following it. Thank you, Corey. Thank you, Rochelle. I appreciate yeah, stay well it. Stay Will do. Stay safe. Yeah, absolutely. We would love to hear your feedback and suggestions for future topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing podcast at thefinitygroup.com or by following Finity Group on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube at Finity Group LLC. You can follow me on Twitter at Corey Janoff CFP, Instagram at Corey Janoff, or on LinkedIn under my name, Corey Janoff. You can follow me on Twitter at Rochelle Finance or on Instagram, Vanderzanden Rochelle, or on LinkedIn under my name, Rochelle Vanderzanden. Check out all of the podcast episodes on the finitygroup.com slash podcast on our Finity Group YouTube channel or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to check out our Financial Clarity blog at thefinitygroup.com slash blog. Thanks for listening to this episode of Financial Clarity for Doctors by Finity Group, LLC.